We're going to read this psalm twice tonight. We'll read it once, we'll pray, we'll talk a little bit, then we'll read it again, and we'll see if anything's different the next time we read it. Psalm 1, 2, 3. I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hands of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy on us. For we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. Let's pray together. Father, tonight uh, we pause at the end maybe of a busy week, uh, celebration, eating, and fun, or family, or hardship, or whatever it was, and, and we pause to remember your place in this universe. You uh, are seated on your throne. The Son of God is at your right hand in a sense, and the Spirit is eternally proceeding from you, and And we're down here running around and doing our own thing so often and we forget that there is one in heaven whose work never ceases and yet is never moving, never changing. We come to your throne tonight. We come and ask that you would provide for our needs like Jesus taught us to pray. Give us today our daily bread. That you would forgive our sins. That you would enable us to forgive those who've sinned against us. That you'd keep us from temptation. That you'd... <laughs> Uh, keep us from the evil one. And more than anything, we pray that your name would be made holy in this earth, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. At the start of this season of Advent, as we begin to long and, and remember the longing that your people had for a savior to come, we find solidarity with them in the fact that we long for your son to return to this earth to set up his kingdom in its fullness. We, we look around this world and we see so many uh, trials and tribulations and hardships and persecutions and so many people who are struggling and suffering and fleeing from their countries and trying to find homes in other places and being displaced. And pray that you would give us hearts of compassion for the people of this world who, who need care, who need love, who need a helping hand or a friend or prayer or the gospel who need a touch from you in a moment of desperation and tonight we lift ourselves up to you as well so many of us are broken or hurting sinning sinful regretful we need your forgiveness and your care and we trust you when you tell us that when we confess our sins you're faithful and just and you forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness we trust you when you tell us that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far you've removed our transgressions from us. And we pray that we would walk in that newness of life that we've received and that we receive when we confess our sin and confess our hardships to you and watch you take them away. We pray that we would find solace in knowing that you are in control, that you are a strong tower, that we find safety as we cling to you and wait for you and run to you and hold on to you and Keep our eyes fixed on you in the midst of the storms of life. We pray tonight as we read this psalm and 
think of its implications here and around the world and in our own neighborhoods, that you would give us hearts for your people, all your children around the world, and, and even the people in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our schools and in our church that we want to hate or we feel hated by. We pray that you would bring reconciliation and use us to be those ministers of reconciliation for those broken relationships. Pray that we would hear from you tonight. We know that you speak when your word is read and we pray that your word would be effective in our hearts and in our lives to transform us as we apply it to ourselves tonight. We pray that your spirit would aid us in that work and speak to each of us individually and to all of us corporately what you have for us and what you want from us and what you want to do through us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Imagine you had a neighbor that lived next door who was a little bit quirky. Some of you already have that neighbor and it doesn't take too much imagination. Some of you are yet to have that neighbor. Someday you will have a neighbor who lives next door who is a little bit quirky. And if you're using your imagination tonight, this neighbor and you get along pretty well. Like It's not like you're enemies, you're not the Hatfields and the McCoys, you're not poisoning their food or anything, and they're not trying to kill you. This is just a neighbor that's a little bit different and you have a hard time building a relationship with. Maybe they decorate their yard in interesting ways, and it annoys you sometimes. Maybe their friends park in front of your house, and you don't like that they do that. Maybe they have a different cultural background, and the food smells that come out of their house aren't the food smells you like to smell when you smell food emanating from windows of houses. I don't know. Maybe they said a comment about your wife one time that you don't really like, or maybe they made a comment about the way you raise your children, or the way your children were in their yard, or maybe your children or their children are always in your yard and they don't understand boundaries. Maybe you got in a fight over a fence, right? Maybe you've got a neighbor who lives next door that you've got a little bit of tension with, and on one hand, sometimes you feel like you should really build that connection with that person or those people, and yet the rest of the time you feel like, you know what? Fences make good neighbors. Let's just keep a wall between us. And, and we don't need to be friends. We, we could just be living on the same street. We don't need to be close. They don't need to come over for dinner. I don't need to go over for dinner. We can just coexist because I honestly don't really like those people. And maybe if I just act nice, they'll become Christians or something, and then we'll be friends, right? <laughs> Imagine that's the way that you acted and felt towards your neighbor and... Until one day, one day you're in the kitchen and you're washing the dishes from dinner and you're throwing the trash in the trash can and decide to take the trash out around the corner to your trash bin. And as you walk into your backyard and over to where your trash can is, you hear sounds coming from your neighbor's window. And you're not the peeping Tom creepy guy, right? And you're not generally an eavesdropper, but there's something about the words coming out of this window that are piquing your interest. And so you linger by your trash can and listen for a while. And as your ear kind of focuses in on what's coming out of your neighbor's mouth, you realize that your neighbor is praying, coming before the Lord on his knees in his house. Spilling his guts to God. 
praising God for the work that he's doing in this world, sharing his struggles with the Lord, confessing his sins, his loneliness, confessing his trials to the Lord, asking God to be with him and help him and wrestling with God and some issues that are difficult for him. And you sit there and you listen to your neighbor, pray to your God, something in your heart begins to change in that moment, doesn't it? Or maybe you feel a little bit guilty. Or maybe your heart feels strangely warmed towards this person. Wow, we've got something in common. I want to talk to him about this. No matter what your heart is doing, it's doing something in that moment. Because when someone opens up their heart in prayer and you hear it, the nature of the relationship they and you have with one another starts to change. Because their heart is being shared in a vulnerable way that you've never heard before. Tonight, my encouragement for all of us is that we would hear Psalm 123 like words coming from the mouth of a neighbor. Maybe when I read it a few minutes ago, you kind of zoned out. That tends to happen when someone's reading the Bible and you're just sitting there. Maybe you read it like a textbook, like, oh, what am I going to learn tonight? Maybe you're trying to figure out who wrote it and thinking about King David and what are Psalms of Ascent. Your mind is going a hundred ways. But tonight, my encouragement, as we read it again in a moment, is that you would hear this psalm as if it is being spoken as a prayer from someone who's your neighbor. Because I believe that Psalm 23 was. That thousands of years ago, someone had a deep experience with the Lord and they penned it. And it so resonated in their heart that it stuck in the pages of Scripture because God saw fit that it would be preserved for all time as we live on this planet. That God's people saw fit that this psalm so much resonated with their hearts as they read it that it became one of the psalms of ascent. That God's people would sing or recite or say this psalm as they journeyed, pilgrimaged to Jerusalem annually because this psalm was a catalytic prayer that struck a chord in their hearts. And my prayer for us tonight is that as we read it, it would start to strike a chord in ours. So let me read Psalm 123 again and do your best to hear this through the ears. of a neighbor praying while you're standing by your trash can. And if your neighbor's window isn't by your trash can, teleport to a different place. Your neighbor prays. I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on us. For we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. And chances are that reading meant something differently to you than the last one. Different words may have kind of jumped out at you. You heard this psalmist cry out for mercy. Maybe you thought of times that you've cried out to the Lord for mercy. Maybe you wondered why this person felt so oppressed and who it was that was oppressing them and persecuting them and scouring at them as they lived their life for the Lord. Maybe you resonated with this humility that this person would look to the Lord like a servant looks to the hands of their master. Maybe you imagine your neighbor praying this prayer and Your heart was warm for whoever it is that was praying 
this. There's something about hearing someone's prayer that brings solidarity between you and them. And even if your neighbor was your most mortal enemy, right? You hated your neighbor. You built the big fence. You got guns pointed at your neighbor, all that stuff. And then you hear them pray this prayer to your God and their God, something would change inside of you. You'd realize that you've been fighting through this fence with this person for so many years, but you're supposed to be on the same team. That the person on the other side of that fence is your brother or your sister, and they're feeling persecuted. And as your guns point through the fence, figuratively, at that person, you realize that maybe they're praying about you. Maybe they're saying, I wish that my neighbor would become a Christian so they'd stop persecuting me so much. When you hear someone's prayer, you get connected with them in a way that is really not happening in many other ways on this planet. And we see this solidarity with the psalmist start in the first verse when he says, I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. Have you ever been across the country from your loved ones? Like you're in Chicago, they're in San Francisco, or you're in New York and they're here in the Bay or whatever it is, and you start to miss them. You miss your wife and kids, or you miss your family, you miss your friends, or maybe you're on a trip with some of your friends, you miss your other friends, or you miss your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, and you just miss them so much, and you wish you could teleport across the country to be with them. And, and in that moment, you look out the window of your hotel room or the place where you're staying, and you see the moon, and you call up your people that you love, or you text them and say, hey, look out your window. Can you see the moon right now, right? And they say, some of you have done this. I see you smiling. Oh, yeah, I can see it too, right? And, and as you look out your windows together, and, and it's midnight for you, it's 9 p.m. for them, but you're looking up in the sky, and you realize that your eyes are both fixed on the same object at the same time. And there's something that happens in that moment where you have this this feeling of relief, of connection, of solidarity with that person a thousand miles away because you're looking at the same object together. And that's what we see in verse 1 of this psalm is that this man, whoever he was, or this woman, whoever she was, is lifting up her eyes to the throne of God and saying, I'm going to stand here and bring my requests to you, to this throne room where you sit. And as we read this, we realize that Every single person who has ever prayed for the last 5,000 years or 7,000 years or however long God's people have been praying, have been praying to that same God in that same throne room in the heavens. That this psalmist who lifted his eyes to the heavens and looked at the throne of God is looking at the same throne that we look at when we sit and pray. Then when the New Testament authors say that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, they're talking about the throne of grace that this man 2,000 years earlier was approaching with his prayers. That all of us who have ever prayed to our God have prayed to the same God. That when your neighbor is crying out to the Lord from his living room and you're praying quietly in your heart next to your trash can, you're praying to the same God in the same place in the heavens. And now we know that God is omnipresent. He is all places at all times. And yet the scriptures explain that we come before the throne of God in that sense. And I think one of the reasons that the scripture authors describe the throne room of God is to remind us that our God is a real being. He is a real God in three persons and he exists. And when we come to him, we all come to the same one in the heavens. There's something beautiful about that. Something beautiful about knowing that you and your neighbor pray to the same God. And, and as this psalmist comes before that God, he says, I look to you like a servant looks to his master. 
I look to you like a female servant looks to the hand of, of her master. I look to your hand and I realize as I come to you in humility that every good and perfect gift is coming from that throne room. That every blessing I've ever received has come from that throne. That every breath I've ever taken has been a gift of grace from that God on that throne in that room. That the car that I drive and the house that I live in and the love in my heart and the family I have and the grandchildren I don't yet have are all coming and emanating from that one place. And knowing that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, comes from above, from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows, reminds me that I need to stand here fixated on that throne waiting for that hand to move because when it moves I receive and all that I need is for that hand to move and so I beg of you God move your hand and have mercy on me I got a great picture of this on Thanksgiving I I was carving the turkey and my dad's dog comes around and in humility just sits there quietly and stares at me as I carve this bird and the dog and I don't have a relationship or anything. Like, I, we've never talked about our transactions with the turkey. I've never fed the dog before. I've never really even pet the dog before, right? But this dog smells the turkey, sees me in a knife, and thinks, I'm going to draw near to this table because from this table will emanate a good gift if I just wait and look at the hand of that master. And sure enough, not because I am good, but because of his persistence, as I cut the turkey, I thought, man, this dog is just waiting. I gotta give him something. <laughs> and I knew that the moment that I gave him the bit of turkey and threw it on the ground like it was a mistake, the dog wasn't gonna be like, oh, thanks so much, and leave, right? The dog just stood there, waiting for another one. What's next, right? Well, you might as well, whoop, right? And I gave away all the turkey, and we didn't eat anything that night. <laughs> just kidding, I didn't do that, but. This is the picture that the psalmist paints of the way that he looks patiently to the Lord. He says, You are my master. I am your servant, and I realize that if I have anything in this life, it's going to come from you. And so I wait here. I fix myself in prayer. I fix my eyes on your throne and on your hand because when your hand moves, miracles happen, and that's what I need. I'm not going to go other places and look for things in this world to satisfy me because your throne is the source of all things that I truly need. I'm not going to go to work and try to find satisfaction there. I'm not going to run to relationships. I'm not going to run to money. I'm not going to run to sex or power or alcohol. I'm not going to try to find fulfillment or success or favor anywhere in this world because it's futile. I'm going to sit before your throne and wait for your hand to move because anything good in this world is coming from that room. And so I sit here like a dog on Thanksgiving and I quietly and patiently and in humility ask that you would step off that throne and give me what I need. Because what, anything I truly need it can only come from you. And that, that's the Advent se- season, right? That's Christmas. As God's people praying and expecting and waiting and hoping and asking and persisting and waiting and hoping and asking for God to step off his throne and do something about this world. To send a savior from the heavens. And on Christmas he did. That God stepped off his throne, in a sense. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. And as the Father sent the Son by the power of the Spirit into this world, he started changing things. The prayers of the people for thousands of years had been answered, and a Savior was given to them. And he started releasing the captives and giving sight to the blind and giving the ability to walk to the lame and 
setting the, the demonized free and raising the dead and showing the kingdom of God what it looks like when it comes. But even though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And he lived that beautiful, perfect, messianic life. And we turned him over to death. Death on a cross. But he said, you know, that was part of my plan. I came here not to save the world, and I would save the world by dying for these people. And that death that he died was no accident. His death was for us, and he paid for our sins on that cross, and we put him in the grave. And on Easter Sunday, he raised from the dead, conquered death, came out and said, believe in me, I have power over life and death. And then he ascended into heaven. He walked back up the steps to his throne room, and he sat down back at the right hand of the throne of God, and then we started coming back to him and praying to him again. See, Jesus, you are at the right hand of the throne of God. I need you. I need you to change my life. And he started changing the world from that room. You read through the book of Acts, you see that Jesus is changing everything from the heavenly places, that he's giving sight to the blind, that he's giving the ability to walk to the lame, that he's opening prison doors, that he's saving souls, that he's setting ships into shipwrecks so that the gospel might be preached. You see it all through Acts that from the throne room, God is doing his work. And so Paul says, let's approach that throne with boldness because he's sitting there and the power is in that room. It's not in us. We're just broken human vessels. The power in the gospel is by the spirit of God who is proceeding eternally from the Father and the Son. And and he's in us now. And so we step back into solidarity with the psalmist and we fix our eyes on that throne room and say, God, we need you. We need more of you in this world and in our lives. The psalmist asks God for mercy. Our eyes look to the Lord until he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on us. And we read that word mercy and we think, well, what did the guy do that he needs to have the mercy of the Lord? He must have sinned. And that's not the, the meaning of that word mercy in this context. That the word mercy means favor. It means a, a someone who is so much superior to someone else who would condescend to come and give good gifts to someone that they didn't have to give. And so he's asking the Lord, God, you have no reason to do this for me, but I, I need you to step out of what your reign looks like and serve me, in a sense. God, you have no reason that you would ever want to serve someone like me, but I'm asking you to do it. <laughs> Show me mercy. Step into this place where you humble yourself by giving a gift to someone like me, he says, as he affixes his eyes on the throne of God. And one of the questions that arises from this passage is, what comes out of our mouths when we approach the throne of God? And we ask him for trivial things? Do we just ask him to bless our day, and like my kids do, give us a good night's sleep and a good day tomorrow, and bless mom and dad, and Jackson and Carter and Hudson, and Brady and Faith and Patience and all that? Or as you fix your eyes on the Lord and you realize the gravity of what you're doing, are you asking him for things that are, are substantial, that are earth-moving things, that are life-altering things, that are things that are important to the day-to-day -day vitality of living on this earth. And we can look to the Lord's Prayer for some examples in this, because in the Lord's Prayer you have some big things and you have some seemingly pretty small things. 
says, God, your name, may it be holy in all the earth. Your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a big, intangible, gigantic prayer request. And then he says, give us today our daily bread. God, we need to survive today. <laughs> and we realize that if your hand doesn't move, we don't eat. If your hand doesn't move, we don't breathe. If your hand doesn't move, we don't walk. And, and so, God, we rely on you today that if I open my cupboard and there's food there, it's because you put it there. I pray that you would. I mean, forgive us of our sins because we are finite, broken, mortal people, and we need you to be our Savior and let us be forgiveness bearers as we walk out into the world and keep us from temptation because we're bound to mess this up in our own strength. And Jesus teaches us to pray. He gives us some big things and some seemingly small things, but they are all things that tie us into the one who is on, on that throne and the power that he has to do everything we need in this world. This psalmist has some specific issues that he brings to the Lord and a specific context that he uses to bring this request for the provision of God. He says, have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. Apparently, whoever wrote this psalm was in a desperate place where God had been providing for his needs and giving him what he needed to survive, but the world was against him. The world looked down on him because he didn't have as much as other people. Maybe they made fun of him because he served his God and he was poor and they were pagans and they were rich, right? And he felt that. He felt the weight of that, that the world is laughing at him and scorning him and oppressing him and arrogant against him. And he says, God, I need your strength in this because it's hard to live down here. God, yes, you provide for me. I'm not asking that you feed me because you have. I'm not asking for money because I've got enough to survive. But God, the way that you've given me this lot in life is less than the world around me. And so everyone is pushing on me and making fun of me and laughing at me and beating me over the head with the fact that I have little God. And I need you to be enough for me. I need you to give me the strength to endure. I need you to work in me and around me and through me because I don't like to be where I am right now. Can you imagine if you heard your neighbor praying that? God, I lived in this neighborhood for so long and I feel all alone. I feel like nobody likes me. I feel like no one wants to talk to me. I feel like whenever I go into my yard, all my neighbors scatter, and I don't know what it is. And God, it's hard. How would you feel if you heard your neighbors say that? We've got people coming into our country and coming into all the countries in the world who are fleeing as refugees from their home countries. And I'm sure that the Christian ones among them who are praying to our God are praying like this. I'm saying, God, I, I, don't, I just need a place to live. I, I just want people to love me, and I feel like everyone has an opinion about me. I feel like when I move into this house, everyone seems to hate me. They've never met me. Everyone's pushing against me. And I, I don't know if I've done something. I don't know what it is, God, but I don't like this. I don't like that I'm displaced from my home. I don't like I'm in this nation. I don't understand. I don't like that everyone seems to hate me before they know me. I don't like that everyone's tweeting about me. I just, I need you, God. Right? It's easy to have an opinion about people who aren't like you, who live next door to you or across the street or across the ocean from you, but when you hear them opening their heart in prayer and they express the fact that they feel marginalized 
and broken and oppressed and hated, it's hard to stay angry. Hard to stay judgmental. It's hard not to, with tears in your eyes, just walk across the street and say, hey, man, I hear you praying. I'm so sorry. Did I make you feel like that? Are you praying about me right now? (laughs) Am I the proud one? Am I the arrogant one that you were mentioning here? When you hear your enemy praying, broken and humbled before the Lord, it's, it's hard to keep considering them your enemy. Because as they pray to your God, you know that they're your brother, they're your sister. You think, what am I doing? Why do I run from my neighbor? Why do I hate people I haven't even met? Why am I so angry about stuff? Why do I distance myself from people? Why? There's something sobering and catalytic and connecting about hearing someone's heart when they pray. I think there are a couple of reasons that this psalm is in the Bible. A couple of reasons that not only is it in the Bible, but God's people have rallied around it as one of their psalms for years and years and years. I think the biggest reason is that most of God's people throughout most of human history, including today, have been marginalized and persecuted and poor and downtrodden. Most people who have ever read the Bible read the psalm and say, yes, that's me. God, I thank you that I have enough to survive right now, and it's hard to live in a place where everyone has enough and I don't. We are the rare folks in human history who approach Psalm 123 and say, I wonder what it would be like to be someone who is Ridiculed because they can't make ends meet. To be someone in their country who, because of their faith, has a hard time surviving and eating. Who has to rely on the Lord for their daily bread, literally. Right? We read the Lord's Prayer and say, why would we pray for that? Because most Christians throughout all time have had to actually ask God to give them food so they don't die. And Psalm 123 is in the Bible because the solidarity that we feel with these prayers is one that's needed for folks who are in the same situation as them. I think that's one reason. The other reason that I think Psalm 123 is in the Bible is for people like us. Because as we hear the heart of someone who is destitute and broken and poor and marginalized and hated and small in the eyes of the world, our hearts grow warm towards those folks. We realize that, and there are people in this world who love the Lord who are having a hard time, and and we refuse to even connect with them a lot of the times. So I think a lot of times we we feel like we don't know what to do when we meet someone who's homeless or impoverished or poor or needy or destitute or broken, is we don't know how to fix them, right? I don't have enough money to buy them a house so they won't be homeless. I don't have enough money to provide for them. They can't move into my home. What am I supposed to do? This man who is obviously in all of those positions or a lot of those positions is not asking God for money. He's not asking God for a helping hand. He's telling God, I need you to be my source of life because the world hates me. If he's asking for anything, it's, it's connection with humans. It's friends. He's asking the Lord, God, I I don't like living in this place where everyone hates me. I feel so alone and I need you to be enough. If you run into someone in this world who's living like this, maybe they don't need your money. Maybe they need you, a human being, to relate with them and love them and connect with them and care for them 
and walk with life as their friend, not as their benefactor, not as their bank account, not as their chauffeur, but as their neighbor, as their brother, as their sister. Psalm 123 is for the downtrodden, but it's also for us to give us a glimpse into the heart of those who are disenfranchised so that our hearts might be drawn towards them. I think what we might do with this passage is is take this imaginary scenario of my neighbor or your neighbor and play it out in real life. Don't like stalk your neighbor. That's not what I'm talking about. Look for people this week that need relationship, that seem lonely, that seem downcast, downtrodden, down and out, hard-pressed, alienated, marginalized, made fun of whatever it is, whether it's at school or work or in your own family, and, and connect with them. Pray with them. Let what's, what Psalm 123 did to you, let their prayers do to you and let your prayers do to them. Pray with one another. It's interesting, Paul tells Timothy that when he goes and establishes churches, he says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without arguing. Right? If you are a man in here, stop arguing with people, start praying with them, and see that connection and reconciliation forms. We spend way too much time shouting our opinions at people. Where the scriptures say, we're family, let's pray together, let's love together, let's live together, let's walk together. Let's befriend people who are persecuted so that people don't have to pray like this. Or at least we can pray like this together. On one hand, it's weird to pray the Lord's Prayer because we have enough to eat. But imagine standing in a circle with people and some of them are homeless. Some of them are hungry. Some of them don't have enough money to provide for themselves or their family. Some of them haven't eaten in days. And you're standing there praying, give us today our daily bread. And you realize in that moment that half the people in your circle are really praying it. And not only is it going to convict you, but it's going to make you go to your cupboard and start feeding people. It's going to start building into this community and creating something that God intended, that Jesus prayed for, that people from every tongue and tribe and nation and walk of life and rich and poor and everyone would be one in his family and there'd be enough for them all. Now we can wait for politics to do that. We can find a petition to do that. Or we can just go across the street and love our neighbor. We can open our doors, open our homes, open our wallets sometimes, open our mouths and have conversations. Go into the break room and say, hey man, I heard you're having a hard time. I'm praying for you, right? Have those conversations to connect in a way that is substantial with love and with prayer and compassion for those who are hurting. Because in the times in life when we've been hurting, that's all we've wanted. We don't want people to come and throw money at us when we're hurting. We want someone to listen to us. Someone to invite us over. Someone to have coffee with us. So I want to ask us how our day was. Let's be that for others as well. And tonight we always end our sermon time with an opportunity to receive the elements of the Lord's table, the bread and the juice, the symbols of the body and blood of Jesus. And a lot of times we view this as this individual thing where I come and I remember my sins are forgiven. But let's not forget it's called communion. We do it communally together. That this is a time that we remember that we together are one with Jesus. We are his body And so there is one head, there is one throne from which every good and perfect gift emanates. But then all of us together are the members of his body. And so we are all being nourished from that head 
together. And so we come and we grab this bread and we dip it in this juice and we eat it and we remember that Christ died to make us his people together. Tonight, if you are a believer in Jesus, this table is open for you as we sing this next song. Come on forward, eat and drink and remember and proclaim the death of Jesus, that he has bought us into his family and created us as his body, his people, his bride, his church. Let me pray for us, and then we will sing and receive communion.